Let's concentrate on science in our third and final segment of today's program and start off by noting that we can definitively answer today that age-old question of which came first, the chicken or the egg. Although the earliest chicken-like animals we know, the Archaeopteryx, etc., goes back to the time of the dinosaurs, researchers in China, and what is now China, that is, have discovered 600 million-year-old eggs. Well, more exactly, tiny embryos that were derived from eggs, but were preserved in the shales and limestone deposits of the Guizhou province in southwestern China. Geologists who found them have used advanced X-ray and other imaging techniques to see what the embryos look like and reported last week that they've caught these fossilized embryos literally in the act of dividing. Said, said biologist Rudolf Raff at Indiana University, we're learning something about how the very earliest multicellular animals formed embryos and how the embryos developed. This gives us an enormous and entirely surprising look at half a billion year old embryos in the act of cleaving. What a window on the past. So this pushes embryos and, uh, and the eggs that uh, preceded them back to about 600 million years of age, which is way before the chicken. Also from the Extreme Science File, we have the following headline. Lab, element 118 real this time. Said the article on this, U.S. and Russian researchers said Monday they'd created element 118, the heaviest known element. It is the fifth ultra-heavy element produced by the team at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in Livermore and the Joint Institute for Nuclear Research in Dubna, Russia, which has come to dominate the creation of rare, short-lived elements. Although they produced only three atoms of element 118 and each lasted less than one thousandth of a second, The team said there was less than one chance in 10,000 there was a mistake in identification. A team at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory in Berkeley, as opposed to the lab in Livermore, announced in 1999 that it had created element 118 by a different route. But those results were later shown to have been fabricated by physicist Victor Ninoff, who was later fired by Berkeley. Said physicist Ken Moody of Livermore, we selected a completely different nuclear reaction performed with completely different people in a a different laboratory. Everything we do is checked and double-checked. The article noted in what we would say is a rather (laughs) incredibly understated fashion, the discovery has no immediate application. This item did prompt me to consult the periodic table of the elements, uh, which I have in front of me. And it is curious to note that they thought that element 118 would be stable, more stable than the ones before it, uh, because it's in the noble gas category. You know, helium, neon, argon, krypton, xenon, radon. Well, the next entry on that list would be element 118, whatever they're going to name it. For my money, I don't think anything above plutonium, element 94, has any practical usage in the universe. So, uh, you know, those old charts that showed element up to 103, Lorentzium, we should just leave it at that. I've noticed in the meantime they've added Rutherfordium, Dubnium, Seaborgium, Borium, Hassium, Mitenarium. That's element 109. And uh, I don't know, it's all kind of silly. To me, it seems more an exercise in naming short, incredibly short-lived elements after, you know, famous physicists that should have been honored uh, previous to this. I guess it's good they finally named something after Niels Bohr and uh, Ernest Rutherford.
They were some of the heavy dudes in, uh, in early 20th century physics. And in a completely different subject, uh, we note that Adam Summers down at the University of California, Irvine, one of our sister campuses here in the UC system, Adam Summers figured out how tarantulas walk up vertical surfaces. It's always been known that to crawl vertically and, and cling upside down, most spiders use minute claws and pads on their feet. Uh, these, the feet are called tarsi. These work well on rough surfaces, but anyone who's seen a spider trapped in a bathtub knows it may fail on smooth or dirty ones. This isn't so critical for small spiders that can survive heavy falls, but for the heavy tarantula, a slip could be fatal. Well, uh, Dr. Summers decided to take a look at uh, the footprints, as it were, of tarantulas climbing up glass, and guess what? They left fragments of sticky silk. Said Summers, with all the work that's been done on spider feet, it's amazing to find something like this. Somehow it's been missed. Don't you love it when somebody takes a look at something that's been looked at a million times before and sees something new? We do. When they took a second look at these spiders' feet, they found they were they're little microscopic spigots that resembled the, uh, the abdominal silk-producing spinnerets that, uh, that spiders have. Anyway, we'd like to get uh, Adam Summers on this show in the future and talk about this. This is... Uh, this is curious stuff. But to maybe the most amazing bit of biology we've read about uh, in recent months comes from the August 12, 2006 New Scientist, where it notes that um, everywhere scientists have been looking, they're finding organisms that are thriving and continuing to live at amazingly low temperatures. The article talks about an organism, a bacterium called Colwellia 34H, which survives in, in frozen droplets in the Arctic Sea at temperatures of 20 below zero centigrade, or negative 4 Fahrenheit. Recent discoveries have shown that deep in the ice sheets of Antarctica and Greenland at temperatures as low as negative 40 centigrade, which is also negative 40 Fahrenheit, that's where the two scales hit each other, Bacteria that are kilometers down can survive for hundreds of thousands of years hunkered down in microscopic amounts of water. But what's really amazing, people, is they've taken this Colwellia bacterium, subjected it to the temperatures of liquid nitrogen, which would solidify your finger within a minute if you dipped your finger inside of that, and found that the organism apparently still is metabolizing. And preliminary research indicates it, that it's not a fluke. If you put the bacteria in liquid nitrogen for one, two, four, or eight hours, the longer it's incubated, the more of this labeled protein the bacterium accumulates. Now, whatever the bugs are doing, they're doing it at an extremely low rate, but this, this really makes the rest of the solar system look more interesting. Uh, the Martian polar caps may vary between negative 120 centigrade and negative 40 centigrade, or Jupiter's moon Europa, which we believe has liquid water below its icy crust. Uh, theoretical models put that ocean's temperature somewhere between negative 10 centigrade and negative 90 centigrade. And I mean, if, you can, if something can survive in the temperatures of liquid nitrogen, then uh, even Titan, which uh, you know, looks within life's striking range at negative 180 degrees centigrade. That, that is really pushing it. Uh, that's really uh, quite unlikely, but uh, you know, it just shows that the more you look, the more surprises we find. In fact, it seems here on Earth, that no matter where you go, which environment you find, uh, you know, almost any place except red-hot lava, you're going to find something living there. 
And speaking of reproductive biology, a little closer to home, uh, according to the Los Angeles Times, researchers at UCLA and the, and the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire uh, did a study on women and didn't tell them what they were really checking out. They, uh, they took 30 female college students and studied them for one month and used urine tests to judge when these women were ovulating. They discovered that women, when they were ovulating, tended to pay more attention to their appearance, perhaps in a subliminal effort to attract a mate. Said UCLA's Marty Hazelton, Associate Professor of Communication Studies and Psychology, the women tended to put on skirts instead of pants, they tended to show more skin, and they, in general, dressed more fashionably. The study was published online last week in the journal Hormones and Behavior. Uh, it contradicts the conventional wisdom that human females are among the very few primates who show no outward signs of fertility. They apparently took uh, 30 sets of photos for each, uh, each subject, uh, blacked out the faces, and then showed the photos to a panel of 41 male and female judges. The judges deemed that the fertile photo was more attractive 60% of the time, which is well above chance. And in a study that I, I find puzzling and don't know what to make of yet, the Washington Post reported last week that, um, that David Grimes, vice president of the Biomedical Affairs for the nonprofit public health group Family Health International, co-authored a provocative commentary titled Time to Quit in the current issue of the journal Obstetrics and Gynecology. David Grimes was calling upon doctors in the U.S. to stop giving pregnant women intravenous infusions of magnesium sulfate to halt contractions that can lead to premature uh, labor. Magnesium sulfate uh, is basically Epsom salt, something you can buy in any pharmacy. It's, it's not patentable, it's old, it's cheap, and as I recall from medical school and residency days, it was effective. And, and yes, mag sulfate can have, uh, have side effects, but all drugs can have side effects. Uh, in this opinion piece, it was suggested that doctors uh, seeking to stave off premature contractions could use calcium channel, channel blockers like nifedipine. Uh, Michael Gallagher, however, a specialist in high-risk pregnancy who practices at Shady Grove Adventist and Holy Cross Hospitals in Maryland, said he regards mag sulfate as a viable and safe option. Nor, Gallagher said, does he think the evidence is as cut and dried as Grimes says. That's his opinion, suggested Gallagher. We're going to ask some people over at the medical center what they think about this. Uh, stay tuned. Also from the potential medical problems file, we have uh, the item that uh, state laws that make it easy for children to skip school-required vaccinations may be contributing to whooping cough outbreaks that are occurring around the country. The P in the DPT vaccination given children is for pertussis or whooping cough, but a lot of states allow parents who have uh, reservations about the shot to skip it, and as a consequence, it appears that we're seeing more of the whooping cough. Some researchers are saying it's time to, uh, to crack down on some of those laws, make it a little more difficult to skip these shots because there is an increased public health risk. And Radio Parallax would like to note that uh, if uh, in the months to come you get a nasty, vicious, persistent cough that doesn't go away for three weeks, well, you better see your doctor and bring up that subject of could this be whooping cough? Because it just might be. There was a story on uh, last month on ants that we've been meaning to get to, and I, I think today's the day. Again, going down to UC Irvine, our fellow uh, 
University of California campus. Uh, some scientists down there are hoping to trigger an ant civil war by experimenting with a colorless potion that makes, uh, makes arthropods try to uh, go after one another in a vicious way. Um, the American Chemical Society in San Francisco met last week, and the research was announced there. And this first application uh, may come with dealing with the problem of the Argentine ant. Here in California, the species has formed one giant super colony that stretches from San Diego to Sonoma and uh, is displacing all sorts of native ant species. Now, in most parts of the world, you know, be it the same species, one colony of ants will regard the, another colony as the enemy in attack. But here in California, all the ant colonies treat every other ant colony like they're all family. Of course, ants identify one another by these uh, hydrocarbon lace secretions on their exoskeletons, and apparently, according to the LA Times, uh, all of the Argentine ants here in California emit kind of a laid-back surfer dude type aroma. But it was noted researchers at UCI think they discovered the six-legged insect's Achilles heels. In a laboratory not far from the bronze statue of UCI's anteater mascot, Biologist Neil Tsutsui and chemist Kenneth Shea recently created a synthetic version of the Californian ant scent, then tweaked the ingredients slightly and transferred the concoction onto ants serving as guinea pigs. Said the article, like cheap cologne, the new scent offended nearly every other ant in the room. One whiff and they began tearing their suddenly strange-smelling comrades to shreds. So far, UCI scientists have distilled five synthetic scents and tested them on about 1,200 ants. Reaction to the odors, it reported, is rated on a scale that ascends from mild-mannered mandible flaring to decapitation. Said Kenneth Shea, our preliminary results strongly suggest that by manipulating chemicals on the exoskeleton, we can disrupt the cooperative behavior of these ants and, in essence, trigger civil unrest within these huge colonies. The article notes that even the most peaceful Argentine ant is never very far from going ballistic. Each spring, the workers rise up and execute 90% of their nest's multiple queens, described as an insect version of the French Revolution. Anyway, practical application is years away, but eventually uh, synthetic ant scents, which are non-toxic to human beings, might be converted into a spray or a bait that ants carry to their nests and trigger underground Armageddons. All right, we'll close with some uh, assessment of risk uh, items. There was a discussion of this topic in the parade section of your Sunday paper last month, which I thought was a good uh, good summary of some, some various uh, diseases, uh, four of which we talked about on this show. We mentioned whooping cough today. We've talked about bird flu, West Nile virus, mad cow disease. Two we haven't talked about are mumps and rabies. Uh, mumps made a comeback last year, 2,500 cases in the U.S. from an almost forgotten disease. The solution to that is that since it's now become obvious that the first dose of the mumps vaccine doesn't work for 20% of people, doctors are now advising that children and adults get a second dose. Uh, of course, people my age, they got the mumps. This is more an issue for those of you under 30. As far as rabies goes, there's only 56 instances of human rabies between 1980 and 2004. And there was a case of a death last year that got headlines. That boy had come in contact with a rabid bat. That's the main way rabies is spread these days, uh, despite the stereotype of the mad dog. 
Dog and cat rabies in the U.S. is very, uh, very rare. And among mice and rats, uh, rabbits and squirrels, it's practically non-existent. If you're bitten by a wild animal, i.e. bat, raccoon, skunk, fox, uh, well, those are animals you need to get a, the shots for. But, you know, if the chipmunk down at the park nips you while you're feeding him some uh, corn chips, don't worry. And by the way, Radio Prilux does not recommend feeding chipmunks corn chips. And our final item for today's show comes from the Marilyn Vos Savant column, also from Parade, which we like to quote from, from time to time. This may be of interest to you if you play the lottery. Letter writer asked, My father and I disagree about staying with the same numbers for each lottery ticket. He says the practice doesn't help even in the slightest. While I agree it doesn't help much, I think one of my numbers eventually will win, although maybe not for a century. But if I change numbers, that eventuality is gone. Who is correct? Answered Marilyn, your father is correct. The lottery doesn't remember which numbers were chosen in the past, and it does not have even the slightest intention of choosing different numbers in the future. So there's your answer, folks. Don't, don't bother bubbling in lucky numbers. Have the computer pick them for you at random. Your odds are just as good. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Our thanks once again to a formal special agent of the FBI, John Peterson, for talking to us about Jerry Whitworth, the spy that lived on Pole Line Road. And if you're listening to us here on KDVS, this program will be followed by The Analyst in his program, Keeping Track. At any rate, we'll talk to you next week at the same time and the same station. Get back